now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning layer ones to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Before we jump in, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. Kava is a cross-chain DeFi platform that gives you the ability to earn more by connecting the world's largest cryptocurrencies, ecosystems, and financial applications in one safe and seamless integration. We're excited for the upcoming launch of the Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Swap will join the Kava protocol and Hard protocol as the next application built on the Kava platform. Celo is a mobile-first platform that makes financial dApps and crypto payments accessible to anyone with a mobile phone, providing the opportunity to positively impact the users of 6 billion smartphones in circulation today. Celo's eco-friendly proof-of-stake consensus mechanism and ultra-mobile light client makes up to 17,000 times faster than other blockchains and accessible to mobile phone users around the world. Visit Celo.org to learn more. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. I help uh, run Delphi Ventures. I'm one of the podcast hosts. I'm thrilled to have on DC Investor, real name Aftab. Uh, he's such a well-known guy in the space. He's been around the block. He's got a lot of interesting takes on Ethereum and NFTs. He's been around a while. His profile picture is a punk, so you know he's legit. Aftab, how's it going? Hey, it's going really well, Tom, and thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be on. Uh, longtime fan and big fan of Delphi Digital. Thanks, man. No, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you. You know, as normal, customary first thing to do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, you know, I've been in the Ethereum space um, and in the Bitcoin space prior to that for a while now. Um, I recently left my job as a public sector management consultant, and I was doing that for about 15 years actually. So a pretty long time there. And now I'm pretty much focused full-time in the space as a project investor and advisor, and just trying to help advance the causes of decentralization and, and helping in this movement as I can. And um, so, so yeah, that, that's a, a quick summary. So the pod series is around NFT culture and community. I don't have a great answer on what that even is yet, but how did you get so enthralled with nfts like what was the starting point for you so to be honest i've been really involved in the ethereum space for a long time as i mentioned earlier and that has focused a lot on spaces like DeFi primarily although nfts have always been a part of it in the background and i actually bought my first nfts way back in 2017 i got some crypto kitties like a lot of people who might be listening to this which are some pretty old that's an old nft game if you haven't heard of it but at the time NFT seemed more like a novelty and not something that would really mature into this asset class, which is what I think they're really growing into. And it was really when I left my job in around February that I just had more time and space to explore NFTs. Because um, to be honest, it's hard to do all the Ethereum stuff that I was doing and DeFi stuff I was doing 
and do a full-time job and really get into NFTs. But as I really started to dive into the space, what I what I realized was I had been approaching it mentally before as like, okay, these are assets for these online games. And that's primarily how I thought about them. What I discovered as I dived into it was, wow, there's a lot of like really talented artists engaging in the space also. So we were going beyond just these game utility items into the space that was focused on art. And I, I've always been kind of interested in art as you know, an amateur, just admirer, um, but never really owned any high-end art like, like a lot of people, right? But I, I saw these NFTs. And I was like, well, maybe I should just start buying some of these. And, and I just started collecting them kind of one by one. And before I knew it, I was buy, <laughs> buying a ton of them and, and just hoarding them. And I, people thought I was crazy, I think, at the time because they're like, what are you doing with all these NFTs? I was like, I don't know. I just like them. And I feel like over time, as I collected more and more, the potential value proposition of them started to become kind of more clear to me. So that's how I became an accidental NFT collector. It's kind of wild that you even said that for those who remember CryptoKitties. Like it's, it's <laughs> wild to think that four years ago, like their NFT drop is so different from what we have today. Is it weird to you like that there was such a long break in between then and now? It, it, it is weird, although it's not surprising. And I actually surmised that, and you you probably remember back then, CryptoKitties, quote unquote, broke Ethereum, or that's what a lot of people said at the time, because <laughs> yep. it spiked the gas fees so much. And I think we've, by the way, we've learned a lot since then, right? So one of the things that CryptoKitties did was it had all of these breeding mechanics on chain, which we've since discovered is not like a good way to use the chain and to use chain-based data. However, using the chain to record um, like the fiduciary ownership data of who owns an asset, not necessarily doing these like breeding games on chain actually turned out to be something that was really beneficial. So I think naturally as we went through the the brutal bear market, I think we can say brutal bear market of the past like couple of years, right? There was just not a lot of interest in in stuff like that, right? People were kind of heads down, they were building, a lot of stuff was emerging on DeFi. And a lot of stuff was being built in the NFT space as well, but it just wasn't getting the same kind of attention. But once, I mean, to be honest, once prices go up and once ETH prices go up and people start spending more money on these things, all of a sudden they become a lot more interesting. And I think that's kind of part of the dynamic at play. So I wanted to save this question for later in the podcast, but I'd be remiss not to kind of hit this off given the long gap between CryptoKitties launch, you know, went through a bear market. Now NFTs are popular again. There's a long time there. And I don't know if people new to the space understand, you know, people that are new to NFTs, like in the last couple of months, I don't know if they understand bear markets, the waiting games, like the real grit and work that goes into actually building these communities. What would you say to people entering the NFT space now, potentially chasing that kind of hype cycle? Like, do you think that they get mm. the long-term timeline here? I think a lot of them will not is the reality. And I write quite a few posts on my Twitter account where I'm kind of like urging people to show some restraint or to be very thoughtful in what they're buying because, you know, people ask, are we in a bubble? And the answer is yes, um, we are in some kind of a bubble. Um, it, bubbles are not necessarily bad though. And they are what any investable asset goes through for like a high, a promising sector, right? And we've seen this in cryptocurrency multiple times. We've seen it in tech stocks prior to that. And I do believe we're seeing it to some degree in NFTs now. 
The question is, how high does it go and where does it crash back down to? I can't answer questions like that. But I do think that if you're buying NFTs, you kind of need to like buy them for the right reason. And when I when I bought all of my NFTs, Tom, I wasn't really like viewing them as an investment. I was buying I was buying them because I was interested in collecting them and supporting the artists. And then over time I started to view them as this like asymmetric bet where I'm like, okay, even if this goes to zero, I'll still be okay financially. But it seems like if if these things succeed, that 1% asymmetric bet and that percentage has now gotten bigger, I would say, probability-wise, you know, if this succeeds, then this is a new asset class. And and this is something that's going to continue to grow and appreciate over time. Not all NFTs are going to fall into that bucket, to be perfectly honest. Like during the bear market, a lot of these NFTs will effectively go to zero because they will not be able to find a buyer at any price. And I, I kind of a saying that I have is your NFT is only worth what someone else is willing to buy it for. So if no one else is willing to buy it, make sure you like it and make sure you are happy to spend that money. So, But that being said, I understand the realities of people kind of viewing this as a speculation game. It just requires a lot of um, care and like any speculation game. And you also have to realize that NFTs are a lot less liquid than like fungible tokens as well. You you like even if you want to sell like if you want if you had some ether or some other token that you wanted to sell on an exchange, you can find a buyer for that. If you have an NFT you decide you don't want to own anymore, you might not be able to find a buyer. I'm I'm really liking the caution that you're giving people, especially on the liquidity cuz obviously works both ways. One question I want to dig into there is you said that early on you bought a lot of your NFTs because you liked the artists you know, you loved the movement, you wanted to support, you know, those artists and building a gallery of things that you actually liked and appreciated. How do you mix that with people just aping into the newest art blocks drop? Like, I guess my question is like, how do you get back to that authentic stage where people are actually collecting, but we we're not like in a dead bear market where we just lose all the hype and innovation because you need a lot of that hype to, to drive artists to be here to to create all this stuff. Right. And I think it's going to be a constant push and pull between those dynamics, to be perfectly honest, Tom. And I think we're going to go through periods that are more frothy, like right now, where almost anything that drops has a buyer. Um, that's not something that is probably sustainable, nor should it be sustainable, uh, especially at the prices that we're seeing. So I think naturally over time, as the industry develops, and I do think we're seeing like an industrial base for NFTs really start to develop. So it's not just the you know, art, one-off artist kind of doing their own thing in a corner. Now there's a huge audience, right? Um, things have changed a lot. Quite frankly, things have changed a lot more quickly than I expected in the past like six months and I would say I've been collecting NFTs probably like kind of close to the beginning of this year. Um, but things have changed tremendously in that time to the point where you've got major celebrities using CryptoPunks and other, uh, you know, NFTs as their profile pictures. You're seeing, you're seeing them take bigger ownership stakes in certain NFTs. So all of that was not happening um, prior to prior to now. And it certainly wasn't happening in 2017 when we went through the bear market of 2018 and 2019. So I think that things have fundamentally changed it. And even if we go through a bearish period, 
you're not going to see, like, I think that I'm pretty confident that like for some of the top pieces by the top artists and the top collections, you're not going to see those valuations like drop to zero. I know I'm providing like a lot of caution across the board, which I think is warranted, but I don't think that the entire asset class is like going to go to zero. I think that what has been unlocked is something that is a lot more durable and is going to continue to be built out over time. No, I love that. And I mean, I, I'm jealous of your collection. I mean, for those who, who are listening or, or are watching the video, it's gallery.so slash DC investor. I mean, you have Fidenzas, you have ringers. Like, it, it shows that you spent a lot of time to kind of craft what you have here, right? It doesn't feel to me like you just aped into like, you know, mm. you, you didn't just like you could have bought like tons of punks, but instead you have punks, you have a, a full collection. Like, how do you like how do you size this, right? Like, like how do you decide not to just buy the floor of punks and, and to curate something you like? Because what I'm seeing here is what looks like a lot of time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that, Tom. And yeah, to be honest, I'm extremely discriminating with practically every single NFT I buy. And um, first and foremost for me as a collector, and I really view myself as a collector, I know there's a lot of like flippers in this space, which I really don't encourage anyone listening to this to like take up flipping because it's extremely risky. And the people who are doing it are very sophisticated, very knowledgeable and know what they're doing. And yes, there is money to be made, but it's higher risk. For me, I don't really like to operate on those kinds of timeframes. I just tend to be more of a long-term thinker and investor and so for me, the satisfaction of getting into something early that I, or relatively early that I think has potential for the future is just something that's more like mentally stimulating for me. So that's why I kind of choose the path that I have. So almost as interesting as what's in my collection is probably all the things that aren't in it, but could have been in it. And I don't claim to like catch every trend. I don't even try. Uh, my philosophy is always one, I have to like really like the NFT and I have to like the artist that's creating it. And if those if, if those two criteria are not met, I'm just not going to buy it like 99% of the time because I don't. So so that's number one. But I think beyond that, I also look a lot at characteristics, especially for these generative art sets where there's like multiple pieces. I really try to like assess the sets as a whole. So I almost will never buy mints on the day that they're minted um, just because I don't like I don't like getting into these gas wars and stuff like that. And I also prefer to select the outputs that I want for my collection. And if you look at my collection, you'll see that I've like kind of like part of when I bought the pieces, I was thinking about how I would curate them physically, like in in space. And eventually I want to do some kind of like a 3D gallery where I can display these. So like a lot of when I was buying these things, I kind of had those things in mind. And I think over time, like that thought process has just revealed itself to be, I happened into collections that became more valuable, perhaps because of those reasons, right? So I do think that there is some fundamental um, value drivers to the space. I can't necessarily like enumerate them for you. It's kind of like a, if it looks right, um, you know, then go for it. That's kind of how I feel feel about it. And if you don't have that confidence, that's okay too. I think for anyone who's listening to this and just wants to get started out, go out and buy like a cheap NFT and don't view it as an investment. Just like get into the space, go through the experience, create an online gallery for yourself, display it, share it with your friends. And then eventually you'll start to develop that intuition. You don't have to spend like millions of dollars to have a collection that appeals to you personally, in my opinion. I really like your answer. My my other question, and I know we're going off the, the question path here, but it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Let's say somebody who's maybe not in your 
uh, position, right? Somebody who, you know, spends a lot of time and they put, let's say, a good portion of their resources into buying one NFT they really like, right? Like they, they have limited resources and they want to buy this NFT and they like the artwork and the artists and they get involved in the community, what have you. It, like they front load a lot of their social capital, a lot of their time, a lot of their network to, to build out a knowledge about this specific NFT and their connection to it, et cetera. Then, you know, down the line, they might want to sell it, right? Mm-hmm. It, it seems very hard for me, for, you know, NFT collectors to sell pieces because they have such a public attachment to them. Like, how would you sell a Fidenza without people thinking, oh, DC's bearish, you know, Fidenza market <laughs> over? Like, how do you go through that thought process if you were in the position where you had to sell something? Sure. And, um, and I'm kind of somewhat known in the space for the fact that I haven't really sold many NFTs <laughs> at all. And I mean, the only thing I've sold is some land from Axie Infinity that I had put up like months ago and it happened to sell. And I was almost surprised when it sold because I had forgotten about it. But I have not sold any of the NFTs that I've bought yet. Does that mean I'm going to hold all of them forever? No. Um, but I think th- your question is very interesting because do people form an attachment to their NFTs? And I think the answer is yes. And by the way, that's also a huge bullish driver for the valuations of some of these. Because if you're using like a CryptoPunk as like one of, as your profile picture and then you sell it, people are going to be like, why'd you sell it? Do you like broke? What, you know, what you don't believe in it? Like, you know, you're going to get a lot of flack for it, to be honest. And I'm not discouraging anyone from selling if they need the money or if they get like a life-changing amount with an NFT, feel free to like take profits. My, my, my approach has always been just to, I want to buy and hold the things that I want to collect. And over time, as I need liquidity, I'll sell off kind of individual pieces, um, to support that versus like what I've seen a lot of people in the space do Tom is they're just like, okay, I think we're at a top. I better, I'm going to sell everything and they flip out of everything. And then things have just, I'll be honest. I think I've handily outperformed a lot of those people with a lot less effort. And I think it just comes down to what is your motivation for being in the space? If it's just about like making money, which yeah, you can make money. Then I think your your mindset is going to be different from that of mine, which is really about long term collecting. So I don't think it's bad that anybody like sell their NFTs if they need the money. I do want to underscore that. But if you're just getting into this for the money and you're just trying to get like a two x, then I would just say like there's easier ways to like make that money probably in the crypto space than with NFTs. No, I I love that, and I hate to like go way back to the beginning here, but I'm, I'm assuming there'll be people who listen to this first episode in the series and say, hey, you know, why are they so bullish on NFTs? And not to get back to basics here, but there's a lot of Netflix documentaries that kind of uh, got me interested in NFTs. I mean, there's Uncorked, you know, the guy selling the fake wine. There's the, mm-hmm. the you know, the famous art curator who was selling the fake paintings. I, I forgot the name of it. Um, then there's Screwball, where they were just overprinted the baseball cards. Like, there's a lot of interesting comparisons. Like, what is the most important aspect of NFTs versus the traditional collectibles market art world that drives you to want to be a collector outside of you know the artwork, but like the specific technicals of what Ethereum or other chains offer NFTs for you? I don't. Yeah, I don't know if I can put it all just on one factor, Tom. But I think it's the the combination of of some of these factors. And I think the first one, of course, has to boil down to like the perfect provenance of these items. Like if you're spending a lot of money on an item, like an NFT, you want to be sure that you're not like getting a fake, right? And I think if you, anyone who's collected anything outside of NFTs, like physical collectibles, knows that counterfeits can be like a serious issue. Like if you're collecting trading cards 
Magic the Gathering cards, like whatever, like comic books, some of the higher value ones, there is that risk of counterfeiting. So that's gone with NFTs. Number two is the supply that is outstanding is known, right? So if you're buying like, you know, if you bought like a baseball card in the 90s, as I'm sure, you know, you probably did. I certainly did. I bought I bought all these sports cards. What they never told you was how many were being printed. And at the time, it's like if you were early to that, some of those cards became worth a lot. But then later on, they just they're just overprinting the heck out of them. And that was true of comic books and a lot of other collectibles. And so I like the fact that the supply is known. Also for me as like a collector, it's just a lot easier to maintain the inventory. Like I don't have to like take up a lot of space. I live in DC area, don't have a ton of space. You know, I don't want to clutter up my home with a bunch of collectibles necessarily, but I like, I like the act of collecting and I kind of always have. Um, and so I think that's compelling, but I think another, I think what's like, those are like some of the more base human reasons why I might want to collect them. But if you look ahead, I think that there's a lot of potential for NFTs to be integrated with like decentralized finance and to become these really valuable um, programmable um, reserve or collateral assets, which just become incredibly useful. We've already seen some of that in like the higher end physical art market, but there's a lot of intermediaries in those processes, right? If you have like a hundred million dollar painting and you're storing it at a free port in Switzerland or any other major city, it's like sitting in a warehouse somewhere and then you have to like sign notes with all these bankers to borrow against them. You might not be able to enjoy the artwork while you're doing that. You might be able to, if you want to sell it, it's a lot harder. So I think NFTs like solve a lot of those problems. And I know it's like a mental leap for someone that might be coming from like the physical art world to understand that value. But as someone who's grown up in Bitcoin, Ethereum and DeFi, I can just see NFTs slotting right into this ecosystem. That's, that's a hell of an answer. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's, it's wild. I mean, it just feels there's like such a dichotomy, right? Like people in crypto just get it, right? Like you see all the problems with the traditional art market. You're like, man, I can't believe they even deal with, you know, authenticity and provenance and, and wondering if something's real. But then you go tr- talk to like a lot of traditional art people and they look at crypto and they're like, oh, absolute scam. Like they don't even they don't even believe like even an inch of it. Like, why do you think there's such a disconnect there? So I think it boils down to, for for guys like us who have been immersed in crypto for years, the value proposition of digital scarcity is just easier to understand, right? It's like, like if you tell me, like you send me one Bitcoin or one Ether or, or even one NFT, one CryptoPunk, like I don't have to make a leap of faith to understand that. For someone that is looking in at the space from the outside, they have not necessarily made that leap yet. They are not ready to like, they just see the JPEG that's selling for a million dollars. And they're like, how can it, how can the image that I can copy paste sell for a million dollars? And a lot of us grew up during that nineties internet era where it was all copy pasteable. Like this idea of digital scarce images doesn't even make sense. And even now you can, you can't, anyone can view these images for free. Anyone can copy them, but only one person can own it. And I think that is like an ownership mindset that people don't understand. I do think what's really interesting about NFTs, though, is, well, Bitcoin, well, we'll start with Bitcoin. Bitcoin introduced digital scarcity to a lot of people. Prior to that, the concept was completely foreign and really did not exist, right? The idea that you can have this censorship-resistant asset, which cannot be just like copied or faked, was, was revolutionary at the time. 
a lot of people still, even in 2021, don't understand that. But what they do understand, I think NFTs are actually easier for them to understand. So like if they say, oh, there's a, there's a unique digital asset and only one person can claim ownership over it. Okay, that makes more sense. I'm not saying it'll make sense to everyone on first blush, but it'll make sense to a lot more people. So that's an interesting point. I mean, I feel like when things get too complex, people eventually leave. If there's enough complexity and enough time, it's not solved. And I'm going to paint some broad, you know, brush strokes here, you know, pun intended, mm-hmm. but like scaling on Bitcoin too hard, Ethereum, you know, uh, scaling on Ethereum potentially too hard, other layer ones, mm-hmm. like NFTs are just so easy compared to DeFi. Like people don't have to worry about like Oracle attacks and token economics and you know, like reviewing the code, like, you know, you know, differences or, or bugs in generative art could create really cool pieces of artwork. They're like a feature, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess what's your take here? Like, do we, I guess it's like the target market for NFTs is just so much larger than DeFi. Like, I guess, how do you think about like market sizing and inclusion and things like that? So I think the use of like layer one ledgers like Ethereum for NFTs is actually a good use of the block space because they don't, especially for higher value ones, we'll start there because you're not necessarily transacting them a ton. They're very high value transactions or they can be. And so you're willing to absorb the transaction fees. And once you get it, like I haven't had to move any of my NFTs. It's super easy. Like I just, I buy it and then it just kind of sits there in my wallet and I don't have to do a lot of like maintenance on it. Compare and contrast that to the state of DeFi now. And it's a lot more complex, right? Especially the state of DeFi up to this point has focused a lot on these like farming games and things like that, token farming games. And obviously that's not the future of those technologies, but it has been kind of what we've seen up to this point. So I view NFTs as actually a lot easier to kind of deal with. And overall is a good use of like of this kind of technology, I think that it will only get easier to use from here though, right? And I think that right now you still do need to have a fair amount of technical knowledge to be able to use these blockchains directly. Um, And I think part of that is just, I mean, quite frankly, that's like the alpha, you know what I mean? If you're smart enough and if you want to take the time to actually learn how this stuff works, you've had access to these opportunities. You could have bought a CryptoPunk for a couple of Ether earlier this year, you know, and it would have been pretty easy. It's just on an open marketplace. So right now is the time where there still is that kind of opportunity. Soon, I think, one, you're going to see more custodial wallets probably emerge where you're going to see custodians like exchanges and similar entities, payment processors who are willing to provide you with a wallet and a more streamlined experience we're already seeing OpenSea and some of these other marketplaces committing to do this. Actually, Nifty Gateway has been an early example of this. Their whole shtick was like making it super easy to use. You can deposit fiat in through your bank account and you can buy an NFT on there. Um, I think that kind of flow is only going to get easier um, and it's going to encompass more and more NFT assets, not just stuff that's created on Nifty Gateway. No, that, that's a really solid answer. Um Respect that take. And I guess my other question for you on that topic is like, we've seen NFTs start to bubble up on other chains, like, you know, Space Mm -hmm. Monkeys on Solana, take your pick. And I saw a tweet the other day and that I initially agreed with, right? It was that Ethereum has so much creative juice, it's hard to copy. And I very much am of that opinion, right? Like you have a lot of the creative builders here. And I mean, look how fast, you know, Loot Project has iterated, right? There's so Mm -hmm. many attachments to that already. 
you know, Kyle Samani responded there and kind of respect for his suite. He's like, look, it's kind of selection bias, right? Like you could build other things on other chains like Audius and Solana and take your pick. What's your thoughts though on like NFTs and other chains? Like, do you, do you foresee yourself, I guess, ever holding, you know, NFTs on Solana or another chain in your own gallery? Um, it's possible. I mean, right now, my perspective has been, you know, up to this point has been like, well, which chain do I have confidence is going to exist in like 50 years? And for me, that's like, I know Ethereum and Bitcoin will survive on those timeframes. For some of the other chains, I haven't always had that confidence. Maybe, maybe I'm becoming a little bit more confident that they will. But for me, it really boils down to, um, it kind of boils down to the one, the quality of the art, but also to the utility of the assets. And I'll start with the quality of the art. And you kind of touched on this. Ethereum is kind of naturally attracting that mind share. I mean, it, it, both on the technical creative level, but also on, these, on this art side. Ethereum embodies that um, decentralized gra- grassroots movement um, of being like this Web3. And I think other chains will try to compete for that vision or will try to complement it. And I think actually that's that's the way that I'm viewing it more and more is other chains are going to complement what is created on Ethereum. And this idea that any chain is going to replace Ethereum is not really realistic. Um, and I, I, it just comes down to, I think, the nature of the assets that are on Ethereum. And even if you look just at NFTs, like there are now enough historic, sufficiently important, valuable NFTs on Ethereum that Ethereum is probably not going to go away because everyone who holds one of those assets is automatically a believer in Ethereum. And they're going to, they don't want to watch their crypto punks just evaporate. So you kind of become this fan of the network that you're buying NFTs from. And that will work to the advantage of some other chains as well. Um, but I do think one, Ethereum still has that core of like artists who wanted to play on Ethereum. And the best artists, they don't necessarily care about like the gas prices. They want to be on the chain where you can get the CryptoPunk, the X copies, and the Dimitri Cherniak ringers and other generative art sets. They don't necessarily want to be on a chain where there's mostly like knockoff of like knockoffs of those. And so that is something that might be a temporary condition, but could shift over time. But going back to my other point was the utility of these assets. And on Ethereum, you do have this composable, highly liquid ecosystem right now, today. Um, You don't necessarily have that on other chains. Could it emerge in the future? Yes. But right now you have people spending, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars on single NFTs on Ethereum. You haven't seen anything close to that on other chains so my perspective is to remain open-minded to see what emerges there. But I also want to see that value proposition prove itself um, because I do think for, for the, possibly for the foreseeable future, for high-value NFTs, there will be a bias towards uh, NFTs that are created on Ethereum. But that's just a hypothesis. We'll see. Yeah, no, that's fair. It is, it is kind of interesting to kind of, to kind of think through that. And it's kind of interesting because it kind of goes back to curation a bit, right? Like for you, you're buying stuff on Ethereum for the reasons you discussed and not so much you know, like Solana and others. And that is, I guess, a form of curation, curating by L1. I'd love to get your take on just, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a longer question, but like overall curation is tough. Like when I look at your gallery, like I love Fidenzas because you own it. Like you're helping to curate the space, like whether you know it or not, I guess, right? But then there's stuff like, you know, super rare who wants their token holders to curate. And then there's stuff like art blocks where, you know, there's a curation panel of a dozen or so people. And then there's the factory where if you've had a curated post, you could post on the factory automatically. And then there's the playground. And then there's just the market, right? Like people on crypto Twitter shilling stuff. And that's a form of curation. Yeah. Like, how do you think this all kind of shakes out? Because, you know, like 
the social signaling, like from you, you know, whether you want the power or not is, is pretty big at this point. So yeah, I'm wondering your take there. So it's really interesting because I think, and, and this is where I like, I draw a lot of um, lessons from like previous art movements in history. Like if you look at the Renaissance and how that evolved and other more modern art movements, and there are lessons from those times. However, we are in a fundamentally different period with the internet. And, you know, like an artist could have created great work in like the 1500s and they would die by the time it became like known to the world or by the time it gained popularity. Today in like an internet enabled world, an artist can create something and it can go viral in like a day, you know, and become the biggest thing on the internet for a period of time, maybe for a long period of time. And I think in that kind of environment, you kind of have to look at value accrual dynamics differently. And there is these mimetic components cannot be ignored. Like the, and, and I don't, I, I can't define what makes like what, what creates good mimetic value. And I don't mean just like purely like internet memes, which are typically like jokes of stuff like, you know, it's not just like crass, crass memes. I'm talking just like what defines the popular taste and how does it, how quickly can it evolve? And I think the answer is it can evolve incredibly quickly. And yeah, maybe like collectors like myself have some part in that. My philosophy is always like, look, I'm kind of like collecting for myself. I was probably one of the first like bigger collectors who started like displaying my stuff in a gallery just because for me, it's like art is kind of like meant to be shared. I was creating like an experience for myself. My vision was always to be able to like share that with others and share like, hey, this is the stuff that I like. And this is a reflection of me and my taste. And so I wanted to do that. I do think that there are other people, you know, and this is where you got to be really cautious as a participant in the space. There are people who will just come online and drop some tweets. They basically pump and then they're dumping a project. And I, I'm not a fan of that kind of stuff, to be honest. And I think it's long-term detrimental to the space. And I think ultimately it's going to be on individual buyers and collectors to um, become more sophisticated and be more realistic about what, what actually is desirable, what might have long-term value, what is just a passing trend or fad for today. I don't claim to be like an arbiter of that by any means, but if people look at my collection and they're inspired, and I've had several people come to me and say this, it's like, you inspired me to change my mindset about NFTs to go from just like flipping it to like actually buying stuff I want to collect. I view that as like a huge positive because if we want to create this decentralized internet, NFT driven metaverse culture, we need people to like hold on to it and not just like turn their head to every single new thing that pops up. And I think we've seen that like, interestingly, I think there's a lot more appreciation for NFTs, like short history um, in the past few months than there has been before. Now that's, that's incredible. I love that. And it's, it's going to be cool to see people curate their own galleries for the long term and stuff like that. I, I had one pointed question for you, like just comparing to the traditional world, do you think that we've already had the Picasso of NFTs create artwork? Like, do you think mm. that that person already exists or do you think that's to come? So I think digital artwork as a medium is not new to NFTs. And there have been some artists who have been super talented and now NFTs are providing them with a way to earn money for art that they created basically for free, in some cases for years or decades. And so the talent, the latent talent has existed, I think, in a lot of ways. 
I don't know if we've seen our Picasso of NFTs, but I'll often say stuff like, you know, it's like OpenSea. You go into OpenSea and it's kind of like going onto an e- like a Walmart for like Picassos or Van Goghs, you know, because it's like it's kind of like this big auction site. So we don't have I don't think we've had enough experiences yet, which is which have made people appreciate NFTs as like fine art. And I think that that is where I think we're eventually going to get more and more to that point where people start viewing NFTs more, not just as these assets or as these digital kind of pictures that they're changing every week, but, but, but they're going to be viewed more and more as fine art. And my hypothesis is that a lot of art and like, I wouldn't say every grandmaster is just a product of nostalgia because a lot of like historic grandmaster pioneered new techniques. But that said, we have seen a lot of new techniques pioneered in like on-chain generative art. Some artists are combining audio and visual elements in really like novel ways like deaf beef. And I think that we are going to look back on some of these creators and we're going to say, wow, this guy or gal created this artwork that was truly impactful for NFTs. NFTs is an art form. And I think that we're only going to be able to assess that in hindsight. But the way that I think about it, Tom, is I really think about these assets as like, you know, how much is a piece today going to influence a creator tomorrow? And the pieces that influence the most downstream creative energy are going to be remembered as grandmasters, right? It's really hard to like look in the moment and say, well, this is like, this is someone that's going to be truly remembered as a great artist. But I, I think most people just don't view like the, the passage of time like that and don't view themselves as being a part of history in the making. But that's kind of been like my thesis since I've gotten involved in like the NFT space. I'm like, this is going to be historic. Like in a hundred years, this is going to be something that was important. This whole, this whole idea of creators being able to earn money for their works that they weren't able to before is going to inspire tremendous creative talent to flood into the space. And they're building on the shoulders of the people who are creating today. No, that's pretty cool. I like that. The The hindsight thing is pretty interesting because I'm trying to figure out how much time is going to pass until it's hindsight. Like NFTs and crypto move so fast that it might not be hundreds of years, obviously. I feel like the time period for that's going to be a lot shorter. Yeah. I think we're going to look back and I mean, people are already doing this now. I mean, they're looking back on artists like X Copy, who um, created NFT art through the entire bear market. No one was paying attention. No one cared, or very few people were. And now they're looking back on him as this is someone who was hugely influential to the genre and is a very important like living artist. And the internet compresses all those time frames from hundreds of years, in some cases, to like weeks. And will they have durable staying power? I think so. I mean, you know, as long as these digital assets are relevant. And I think stuff like as we start to think more about the metaverse, these digital assets are going to become even more important. No, I'm with you. And I was having a conversation internally with my partner, Medio, and and one of our guest analysts, Coley B. I don't think he wants me to share his real name, so we'll use that for now. Uh, He's a a fantastic analyst within within Delphi, a great partner Mm -hmm. of ours. And we were talking about one of one drops and we were talking about like supply of NFTs and we we're talking about fractionalization. And one of the things that came up was we we're trying to figure out, you know, in an era of fractionalization and, and full disclosure, we're an investor in fractional, which is part of the example here. Like, why would people want to buy like a floor punk or, or a floor fidenza? Well, I say floor fidenza, they're so expensive. But um, why yeah. would somebody want to buy a floor when they can buy part of a fractionalized, you know, zombie punk or something very rare? Like, what's the impetus mm-hmm. for somebody to want to buy one of like the whole thing when they could just buy part of the best version? 
So I think it's a highly individual specific question. And even the same individual might have different preferences or hold, hold, hold both preferences at the same time, quite frankly, which I think we will see. But I think one, you know, it, it goes down to the motivation for why someone is collecting. So for me, I do like to hold like the whole piece. I like to be able to, and I, to be fair, I got into a lot of these when they were cheaper and it was more affordable to get a whole piece. But I like having these pieces. I like having them in my gallery. I like having that curated experience. Like you're not going to get that same experience anywhere else unless they're copying my NFTs, right? That this That's the only place where you're going to see some of the NFTs that I have. I do own several NFTs that are like one of 20s. So they're almost like fractional in that respect. And that's just because I like the artists and I like the art and I liked having them displayed in my gallery. I think the fractional piece is interesting because one, it brings a, I think a big part of the use case is actually the financial exposure. So someone can now get financial exposure more easily to some of these high-end pieces that they could not afford like a whole one of. I think that's hugely valuable and raises the value of every other piece in the space that even the ones that aren't fractionalized, because it allows that much more liquidity into the system. Which, and that's not something that's really done easily in mainstream art or traditional art. It is done at the high end, but it's like through all these intermediaries. And we all know that all of those experiences suck and are not accessible to most people. But anyone can go on right now, Tom, and buy a fractional ownership in a zombie punk. And I think that's pretty cool. And I do think we're going to see people like even showing those off and saying like, hey, look, I own like 1% of this punk. And that's going to be cool. And I, I think people, it just comes down to whatever people kind of view that as valuable for collecting, that's, it's going to happen. We haven't really had this kind of like fungible tokens being these collectibles in a, in a large way. Like most people have their ETH balances or BTC balances. They're kept secret or you try to keep them secret. It's not really public information that you want to share. And I think that maybe as we get into this, we're going to have people say, hey, I own 1% of this punk, 1% of that punk, and here they are in my gallery. And I talked with Andy from Fractional about this a couple of times, but I do think, you know, what I told him was, think about how you can make this a meaningful experience for collectors, not just speculators. And I think the team is really trying to think through how to do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of it not in like an us versus them kind of situation, but sometimes it's hard to think through kind of where the value flows, right? Like, do you think that we should think about it as as two sides like for, like for the community like it's very cool to be able to own part of a punk use its likeness join the community around it but on the other side for some collectors they want like a one of one like they want their own swiggle they want their own punk like but i guess mm-hmm. from a financial perspective i guess it's hard to think of the floor as outperforming part of the rare piece that gets you know bid up given amm dynamics and only a percentage of the collectible supply in there but it is interesting to kind of think through the two sides there yeah, and I don't have an easy answer for that. Uh, my my hypothesis is that floors are going to do just in general a lot better than people think they will. I think the instinct is to assume that only the highest end are going to appreciate, but I think the floors also have a liquidity to them that creates that value. And I actually wrote a tweet kind of along these lines earlier today. Like if you own one CryptoPunk or one generative art piece, you're you kind of like part of a community just by buying that, right? And and those things become it is. I think people actually feel more comfortable buying assets like that than buying like a great one of one piece, even if it's from a known artist. And some of the factors that I think are important are like, well, if you're buying a CryptoPunk, you have a FlorPunk, let's just say a FlorPunk, you have all of these comps. You probably have a sale that occurred in the past hour. And you can say like with some reliability, like this is what it's worth right now. 
How do you assess that for a one-of-one piece by an artist who's maybe only created five pieces and four of them haven't changed hands in a year or something like that, right? It's a lot harder. And so if you're a buyer, you become more comfortable deploying large amounts of capital into things that already have like have more of a price history, basically, and especially a recent price history. And so that's why I think people are always the floor of some of these desirable sets is not a bad place to be at all, in my opinion. No, I'm I'm with you. It's an interesting kind of conversation. I don't have any killer thoughts there, but it's it's just a question I've had. And I want to switch gears a bit to the community side of this because you, we just mm. talked about like you know buying part of a punk, joining the community, getting engaged. I, I, it's hard on art. Like, how do you think through like judging a community's you know vitality or, or like does it not matter because it's artwork versus you know other DeFi communities? Because like obviously like I'll take Squiggles for example. Like, there's a Squiggle DAO, right? I'm sure punks punks like mm-hmm. they even have DAOs by. If you have a cowboy hat, I think there's a cowboy hat or community. Like, how do you judge community very early when you're dealing with a sole artist? Like, it's hard to think through. It's kind of like, you know, you're betting on the artist, but you also, I guess, want a community or does that not matter as much? So for me, and people have different investing styles and collecting styles. For me, I actually try not to get too wrapped up in community stuff. Because again, as I told you, like everything I'm buying mentally, I'm buying for like five to 40 year hold or whatever, you know, until I, until I'm dead. Right. I'm I'm planning to hold a lot of this stuff for the long term and exiting along the way for liquidity when I need to. Um, So I view community dynamics as potentially ephemeral and very difficult to assess like which ones are going to have long-term staying power. I definitely missed out on some really valuable NFTs by having that mindset, but I kind of just stick to the domains that I can understand and feel like I can have like an edge on long-term. And I feel like assessing community dynamics for these projects, even for like five years from now, is extremely difficult for me to do. There are some exceptions to that, by the way. And I think those revolve around like DAOs that are funded. Like I think this Nouns DAO project is like super interesting where they sell one noun every day and they have accumulated a treasury worth thousands of ether already. Like that's that stuff is like more, uh, I kind of get that more. These purely like avatar profile picture social token projects, I think, I think they can create a lot of value. So first of all, I don't want to discourage anyone from Putting or getting involved with them. I think though you have to consider how much capital are you willing to allocate to something like that and how much of that is that is that part of your portfolio. So, but as far as the social dynamics, I mean, let's just use for, on the art side, well, you can use art blocks as an example. And I think a lot of your listeners has probably heard of art blocks by now, but this is a platform for generative artists, which was created, I think they launched either late last year or very early this year. I kind of got into it in February. And the, what attracted me to it was there were all these different artists coming there, creating like really cool work. They were all interacting with each other, but I also saw this collector base being created. And I was one of them, you know, that all like love this stuff. And they're like, wow, this is so cool. I want to, I want to buy one of these. I want one from each set. And I was like, okay, let's take this and multiply it by like a hundred or a thousand. And, and then it could become something that's really important. I think the other thing that true artists do, not just these profile pictures, but the artists, is they often um, they have referential respect for the people that preceded them, right? So it's not just a project or one community. It is a culture that is created around them. And very much around on-chain generative art, I'm seeing a culture emerge around that. 
I'm seeing cultures emerge around other kinds of NFTs as well. So I think that you're, whether you like it or not, when you buy an NFT, you do become a part, a visible part of some community. I just think that the community is not always as f- at the forefront as it is in certain kinds of projects. Does that make sense? No, no, it totally makes sense. And I guess like, you know, picking on an artist, I guess, does it matter to you if they're like mass releasing new releases or like there's a give and take here, right? Like if Tyler Hobbs never makes another project, like Fidenza is probably worth more. But then again, if he makes new projects, it makes him like a more prolific artist or well-known. Like what's your take on like artists release cadence and experimentation and things like that? So it's a super fine balance. I don't have a hard and fast rule, but in general, I will shy away from artists who are like extremely prolific, just like diluting their work basically. But also you do need to have enough where you can create this collector base around you, right? So I think the artists who are going to be most successful in this medium, Tom, are the ones who understand how to manage their social identities also. And there's no there's no cookie cutter approach. I'm not saying you have to be like a saint online or you have to behave a certain way, but you have to be willing to create that community or there have to be people who collect your work that are willing to create that community for you. Because at the end of the day, that's where you get the people who are really going to want to collect your work and not sell it. And that's how valuations get driven up. It's not the people who are selling, it's the people who are not selling that drive valuations. And so that's that's pretty much how I think about it. So when I look at an artist... I don't want to see them like releasing like a new set every week. That's not like interesting because it does devalue their work. Or if the set is like too big and it's not like interest, you know, I, I, I was chatting with a generative artist earlier today and we're in the discussion was along the lines of if your set is like too big in some cases, it's not going to be visually interesting. It's not going to be like diverse. It just becomes like too big. So part of the selection, part of the artistic process is selecting the right set size for a generative art set, which I don't think, and I think artists are becoming more savvy on that, but that's been something that I've been acutely aware of as a collector. Like I want to own something that feels unique, but is also part of like the set. And I think if an artist is just cranking out work, that is dilutive to that. And so I think that most of the best artists understand this really well. And most of the best artists really carefully control their supply. They'll act like they don't, but trust me, they're thinking about it. It's it's a good point. And I mean, it, it again kind of flows back to curation and I don't have a good answer here, but I probably don't have a great question, but like the traditional art market is dominated and curated by what I would assume to be very wealthy, connected people in a private manner. And that's just a total guess, but we'll see. Like NFT art is so different because like my next door neighbor has an opinion on whether he likes, you know, a Fidenza versus Squiggle, like, and that's curation and it's in the masses. Like it's just, I don't know the effects of like global, easy curation for art NFTs, but like, obviously there's more involvement, but what do you think? Like, just does, just, does it make like a, just a massive market? Are there ripple effects? Is it just a better curation mechanic for the traditional world? How do you think through that side of things? Well, I think that in some respects, we'll probably, um, repeat some of the mistakes from the traditional art world, just because there's so much content and it's very difficult to filter it for most people. And so the way that most people make a buying decision is they are looking for social cues from someone to say like, Hey, this is a good set. Like time I get hundreds of messages a day. It feels like asking me, Hey, is this a good NFT set? Would you buy it? And it's just, I don't reply to those. Cause it's like, look, I don't want to like, 
my, I would rather just speak with like my holdings. And if you people want to look at them and say like, Oh, well he invested in this. So he must have some faith in, or he must like it. Then that is like, that's the degree of curation I really want to do. I'll have opinions on other stuff sometimes that I'll express because I can't, I can't afford to buy pieces from every set that I think is cool. But yeah, people are looking for that kind of guidance sometimes. And I, you know, if I'm not providing that, which I typically don't, then someone else is. And so they're taking those cues from somewhere. Um, I do think, though, the opportunity that we have with NFTs is it's a lot more, it can be a lot more organic because you can hear a lot of different voices all agreeing that something is interesting. Fidenza and Ringers are two sets from Artblocks, which I feel like kind of had those moments where it wasn't just me saying like, hey, I love Ringers and it's my favorite generative art set. It was a lot of people saying that. And same thing happened with Fidenza. Same thing has happened with CryptoPunks. And so that's that, that, that those collection of voices create kind of more comfort almost than just one art expert saying, well, this is good, right? Um, but I, I don't think we're typical. I don't, we're never going to go away completely from models like that because we're social creatures and this is a social, it's, a, it's actually an even more transparent market than the art market. So like you can see moves live on chain. You can see who's buying what. I've had this happen a few times where I made some bids on stuff and people came in and bought them in front of me. So I don't really make bids on stuff anymore. I just buy it because if people see that I'm bidding on it and they're like, Oh, if he likes it, then it must be good. Yeah. And I'm just going to buy it. I yeah. Stuff like that, that happens all the time. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Yeah. I was going to ask if people just send you like random pieces of artwork to your ENS address just so they could say you own it. But yeah, yeah sometimes I mean, they oh. do. Yeah. And I, I, I had to caution people on that. I was like, well, just cause it's in my collection. Don't assume that I bought it. You got to yeah. like it. Yeah, no, that's, that would be, that's kind of a rough road to go down. One of my other line of questions for you is on generative art. Like I am just completely blown away by like the ability for like code to create artwork at mint and like all the iterations you can have. And it's kind of crazy. Cause like, you know, artists are now coders. Like, I, like, you know, like they're like codings enters all this like art. Like, I don't know if anybody really thought about that in the traditional world. I'm sure it exists, but what's your take on like the generative art market? Like there's so many, like, I don't know, like, have we seen the perfect code or perfect formula? Like, what's the iteration process like? What's your take? Like, there's a lot of questions there, but I'll, I'll yeah. leave it kind of open-ended for you. Sure, yeah. And I, I, I'm a huge fan of generative art, which if you looked at my collection, you can see that. And I was probably one of the earliest, most vocal proponents of on-chain generative art. Because when I got it, it just, like, clicked for me. I will start off by saying that generative art as a medium is, has existed for decades, right? Really since like computers became more easy to use and popularized, people have been creating generative art. Um, it just hasn't really been a medium that's gotten a lot of attention because as we've talked about, like digital art is just hard to monetize in general. So it hasn't gotten the same kind of respect. And I think the on-chain part fixes that. But people were even doing generative art by hand on paper following algorithmic rules before computers like were really available. So the, it's it's yeah. not a new medium. Yeah, it's kind of crazy when you think of that. Yeah, yeah people were doing that. Yeah, just like following algorithmic rules and like drawing out and see what comes out. So that's the nature of human creativity is we create machines and we figure out what we can get them to do for us. And I think that generative artists have a unique kind of creativity because on the one hand, you've got to have this like logical ability to code it up, but you also have this have to have this creativity where you create something that is aesthetically beautiful and somewhat unique coming out of that. And I, so for me, like when I really like understood the medium through NFTs, I was like, this is really cool. But I think what's unique about the NFT on-chain aspect of it, Tom, is that 
it's not just creating like that artwork using the algorithm because artists have been doing that for a while. And certainly in the past couple of decades with personal computers, artists have been cranking stuff out. And typically the generative art process was, well, I'm going to create like 10,000 iterations of this algorithm. I'm going to pick the best three. I'm going to post them on Instagram or whatever. I'm going to try to get it into a gallery. And that's still like cool. You know, I mean, I think that's interesting, but the on-chain dynamic of like minting makes this like a hundred times more interesting for me because when you combine it with on-chain minting, basically the algorithm is stored on chain. And when you go in and mint a piece or someone else does, like, let's say it's a collection like ringers, which is capped at a thousand pieces and ringers, by the way, is like my favorite generative art set. So I encourage everyone to check that out. Ringers by Dmitry Cherniak, really talented artist, but like that algorithm only outputted 1000 pieces. And each one was minted based on the transaction hash of the user that submitted it. And so it is one of a kind, basically based on a random number that went in there. What is interesting to me is the artist had to give up his curation process to the algorithm. So the artist could not look at it and say, well, these are the 10 that I think are the best. It's like, look, these are the thousand that are coming out of this and there's no controlling what comes out. If a total dud comes out, so what? You know, like you're stuck with it. And that is, I think that requires a another level of like talent and creativity to really design quality artwork in with those kinds of restrictions, but also creating sets that are diverse, but still like kind of coherent and have like a consistent quality to them. No, that's an awesome answer. And I watched the Bob Ross documentary last night. Um, kind of interesting how much he went through and I, I won't share too much for, for those who don't want to see it, but for those who watch it, they'll, they'll get my comparison here. Like, on Ethereum, we saw a lot of copycats. Uh, you know, Tron's mm-hmm. a good example, like you know, copy paste code kind of idea. And I won't go down that that rabbit hole right now. But it, it seems like in the generative art market, since the formula is on chain, anybody can really copy it and just make a bunch of money. But on the flip side, you know, the, those who dig in can easily say, you know, here's a compare and contrast. It's you know pretty similar. You got to rip off. It's not really worth it. What's your take on like where, where do you draw the line between like? copying the code that creates the good stuff versus creating something brand new. I don't really have a lot of insight into like the code itself that creates the stuff. Yeah. And I think like in frothy market conditions, like we arguably have today, like almost anything will sell. So it's like, yeah, you can create, I mean, I I think, but I do think that social cues are pretty important here, right? If something is a blatant ripoff of work that an artist has done, and we have seen that in some cases where people have just tried to use an artist direct algorithm and either do it again on Ethereum or on some other chain, those things are not like received well. And yet the, the person who puts out that scam might make some make make a little bit of money, but they have no almost no value on secondary. Uh, or if they do, it's kind of like a, it's not really like something that's cool to have. To be honest, in some cases, like you know, like it's like there's been knockoff punks on a lot of chains, um, and I I'm not a fan of that when you're just copying someone else's like creation. That's not cool. I think if you're like iterating on it, you're doing something interesting. And hey, that's part of what art is, right? I mean, art is all about taking techniques that other people have done, iterating on them, adding your own flair to them. And I think the market will become fairly sophisticated and will just value that stuff appropriately. And a lot of it's going to be worth zero. 
you know, and that's just, that's fine. You can still collect it if you want. Like I've got a, I have a fast food punk that somebody sent me and I think they're actually worth some money, but it's like my punk wearing like a, a McDonald's hat. And I just think it's like funny. And I'm like, okay, cool. I, it's like, you could, you, now someone that's more skeptical might be like, well, it's just a rip off. It's a cash grab. It's like, yeah, but it's kind of like just for fun. So I encourage creators like not to take those kinds of things too seriously, but I totally stand by the creators who are like, Hey, you just copied my work one for one and deployed it on, on another chain or on Ethereum, that's not cool. And I think those will be judged pretty harshly over time. Yeah, no, I'm, the transparency helps to allow people to judge. I totally agree. And one of the questions I kind of glossed over, I, I should have asked earlier, do you expect to like earn a yield on your art NFTs? Like, you know, NFTs, like, you know, rare axes, like you, you could game with them, you can earn a yield. Do you expect to earn a yield per se on your collection? Or is it kind of for you just free to look at for everyone? Um, for me, it's free to look at for everyone. And I may eventually do some kind of gallery at some point, but I mean, my goal would not really be to charge or if I do charge, it'd be like donations that are going to charity or something like that. My goal is not to like earn an income from the pieces I have. The, the bit, it's, I, I, it's hard considering it's all public. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's all, yeah. Yeah. I don't know who's going to pay for it or what they're going to pay for, but yeah, I think like, I actually think people might be willing to like donate to charity in exchange for like visiting a virtual gallery or something. I think that there's models like that that could become compelling. But for me, I I really view these as like collectible pieces of history and I just kind of want to have them. But also I'm not, my, my motives also go beyond that because as I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of these assets are going to be usable in like DeFi stacks in terms of DeFi apps and stuff like that. I don't know exactly what that will look like, but it is possible that I might be able to deposit works into some of these protocols in the future and either borrow against them or put them up as some form of collateral, other collateral or earn some kind of yield that I haven't anticipated. And I think people are thinking about how to design mechanisms like that. So I'm open to stuff like that. Like I'm definitely open to that. I think there's a world in which I don't have to sell that many of my NFTs at all because I'm able to just like borrow against them. And if they keep going up in value, then I can keep borrowing more. Of course, if it goes down, then I, I lose the NFT. But like, am I willing to take that risk with one of my NFTs? Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm looking forward to like experimentation like that as this becomes a true asset class, because these are the things that like make NFTs unique and give them this unique value proposition versus physical art. Now I'm, I'm with you there. And you know, the verse physical art idea is, is pretty interesting. Damon Hurst is like a well-known artist. He created a, a work called The Currency. It's like 10,000 paintings of dots in a vault. And I think the way it works is at the end of the year, people can choose whether they want the physical version or the NFT version. Is that accurate? Yeah, I was wondering your take there. Do you think that, I mean, it's kind of sample bias because I guess they're they're buying it crypto, but I think. But what's your take? Do you think most people are going to choose the NFT version? So I think I, I'm not 100 sure, but I think when you did the claim, you had to choose on the spot. Oh, um, gotcha. Okay. I think I think I actually own one, but I seem to remember like selecting the NFT. But I think that it's going to be really interesting to see. And I haven't seen how the numbers have been shaking out, but I think the NFTs are actually like way more interesting to me. Like it, mm-hmm. when I bought it, I was like, "There's no way I'm going to keep the paper copy." I'm just for me, and I actually think we're in this like halfway point. Tom, in this industry where like people are still trying to grasp their mind on like buying something that's hundred percent digital, you know, it's like, it reminds me a lot of like when I was like, when I bought my first like Bitcoin and like, I guess it was around like 2013 or something like that. And at the time I wanted to buy one of those Cassassius coins or I don't oh, know, how yeah. to say, you know, you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. 
where it's like I, yeah. you buy like this brass coin or whatever, and it's got like a private key inside of it. It has like <laughs> one, one Bitcoin deposit. It's a crazy it. thing about it in hindsight. <laughs> I know it is. It was. But, yeah. but at the time, I was like, I want one of these because it's like it kind of like melds this physical and digital thing. I wasn't like ready to go digital. It just I, mentally, I wasn't there. And I think with NFTs, we're seeing some of that. Like even some of like Beeple's earlier releases. And Beeple has done some really interesting and like innovative, unique stuff with his physicals, where it's like you buy it and he sends you like a little like frame. I I actually bought one of his pieces. I haven't opened it yet because again, I'm not that keen on the physical piece, but it's like a little monitor that displays the work. And I think stuff like that is like kind of interesting. But now all of a sudden, if if you want to resell that NFT, you've got to deal with this physical inventory. And I just I, I don't think that's what Web3 is like about this decentralized ownership. So I'm I'm in camp like, give me everything decentralized as NFT. And if the artist wants to sell me a physical print of it because I own that NFT, that's cool. Like I would, I'm, I'm going to buy some of those. I'm going to like hang them up on my walls. But, um, you know, for the most part, I'm much more interested in digital inventory. Yeah, I'm with you. I guess the only way it'll be really interesting is if like 999 people chose the NFT version and one guy gets the print. But granted, we already probably know this Mm because to your point, people have already kind of decided. Yeah. And just to close out, I have two last questions for you. Uh, When I left Wall Street, I was like so bullish on like institutions coming into crypto and all the capital they can bring. Now I couldn't care less because I think DeFi and crypto is just going to level them and and rebuild them from the ground up but like what's your take on the traditional like we're seeing like you know punks and stuff being sold at christie's like do you care if the traditional art market gets involved and say is a buyer for your assets or do you not care as much um i care insofar as it's a validation of the culture that's establishing itself in the crypto sphere right like i i really view nfts as this digital, but let's just say it's a physical manifestation of like what crypto is all about. It's all about this decentralized ownership. A lot of the art that's happening on crypto is not stuff that could be funded easily outside of crypto. And it's 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 frankly a lot of artists and work that have been marginalized by the traditional art community for a long time. That said, I, I don't believe in like being exclusionary. Like I love supporting like if it's the counterculture, great. You know, if it appeals to me, I'll support it. But I'm not about like excluding anyone from participating. So if institutions want to come in and want to help expose this art form to more people, I'm in favor of that. Like, do I view them as buyers of my NFTs? I don't know. I mean, and and um I think that for me. My goal is not to sell my NFTs to like a bunch of institutions. Like I do think it's important that like we get them into the hands of like some museums so that people can understand them. It's immense their cultural relevance in a way that perhaps goes beyond what we've already achieved so far. But I think that, you know, I, I think fundamentally it's about just expanding people who are exposed to the art. And if we expand the collector base through that, I'm somewhat agnostic to who's buying it. But if, if all of the great art just gets bought by these traditional art funds or hedge funds that I don't think that's like a great outcome because I don't think that's within the spirit of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I don't want them to just buy it and be an exit liquidity. I want them to validate it and help curate and get the masses involved. I totally agree. My other kind of closing question, well, I have two more, sorry, but I, I think it was Kyle Samani on Twitter, and I'm, and I'm going to botch this because I'm doing it from memory, um, but I liked his tweet. It was kind of like, you know, how do you actually support like millions of creators, right? Like 
it's just hard. Like not everyone has like 0.5 ETH to ape into every art play. Like you mentioned earlier, like it's impossible for you to do every play, even in, in where you're at. Like, how do you think we're going to like, I, I guess we're going to need new business models around this beyond just primary market sales. And, and that can happen. Like look at YouTube, you know, like, you know what I mean? In the traditional world. Like, what do you think is like the path to like support, like sustainably supporting like the long tail of creators, if it's even possible? I don't know if it's like, a, I don't know that everyone that wants to be a creator will be able to earn money being a creator. And in that sense, it's not going to be that different from how art exists today. But I do think that people, it's more likely that talent is likely to be surfaced through this process and through these mechanisms of being on chain so that like really great talent won't stay buried in the basement. They're going to be able to earn potentially a lot of money by creating work for others that, that add to the culture. Right. So I don't know that we can support every single creator that wants to earn a living from NFTs. And I, frankly, I mean, I don't know if that's the right answer that people want to hear. I don't think this should be our goal. I think our goal should be to get more really great creators, the recognition that they deserve, Deserve and allow them to earn a living through 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 doing this work. And I think like like you know I talk to a lot of artists and NFTs have changed their lives because they were they were working in some cases like one or two jobs doing something else. They were just doing this as a hobby, even though they're tremendously talented. They could not focus on it. There's no business model for them to do that. Now they're able to sell this work. And on top of that, like these royalty mechanisms that are built into these NFTs are hugely impactful. Like, I mean, you know, and the idea that you can create a work of art and earn like a few percentage points every time it's sold, and that allows you to continue to create more work, you know, it, I think that is a really virtuous and exciting mechanic. So I, I'm i more excited about that than like getting everybody paid for every single JPEG they ever create. Because I don't ever see us being in a world where that is possible, probably. No, you're right. And I mean, the the, the ongoing royalty to the creator baked in at like, I guess like the NFT smart contract at, at that level. That's really interesting. Cause I mean, it, it drives them to create quality, right? Like don't drop a thousand, like drop your best piece. Cause you're going to make money on it forever. Like that's really powerful. I, I mean, obviously that doesn't exist in the traditional world, does it anywhere? Or I mean, for traditional artwork. Not as a matter of course, no. I mean, I won't yeah. say that it's, it, it might be a mechanic that exists somewhere as like something esoteric, but yeah. yeah, in the smart, and there are ways to get around that for NFTs, by the way, because I can just send you an NFT and you can pay me OTC. And, mm -hmm. but it kind of like goes against the spirit of what we're doing here. And I, I, I wouldn't participate in a deal like that myself because part of what I'm doing is when I buy it, I want to support the creator. Right? Even if I'm not the first buyer, I'm supporting that creator. And if I sell that work for a lot of money, then that creator contributed to that upside. right? And, and I want them to have a little piece of that. In traditional art, it hasn't been like that. The, especially for new artists, they're selling their work at a really low price, and then it sells for millions of dollars, and they never see another penny from it. You know? And they can create new work to kind of tap into that. So that also another, this goes back to what we're talking about earlier, this gives them another avenue through which they can control their supply because they don't have to create like a ton of new work if they get residuals or royalties off of the existing work. And I don't want to stop creators from creating, like everyone should have their own creative process. I'm more just thinking about it from the mindset of a collector and where I want to put, put large chunks of money. And, and yeah, some of these things do matter to me. No, it, it's a really good question or sorry, it's a really good answer. Um, and I really like that. And I, you have such incredible takes on the space after I want to keep going for a little bit. 
I sure. again, I'm going to paraphrase another tweet, but I don't have it pulled up. But I remember Suzu tweeted, it, it may have been recently or a couple of weeks ago, like, you know, people want to buy the most culturally significant things in the world. And I, I might be botching it a little bit, but it's a really kind of powerful point because it's, it's just so true, right? Like owning ETH is one thing, but like owning the most culturally significant pieces of art, like that's, that's a flex, right? Like what's, what's your take on his, his idea there? Like, do you agree or disagree? I think it's, I think what he was alluding to there is just inherent to human nature and people, and there is like a status symbol effect to NFTs. Now I'm just going to say when I bought a lot of my NFTs, they were not status symbols and they, a lot of them were not particularly valuable, right? <laughs> they were negative I mean, symbols. People got yeah. mad you're wasting your ETH. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you how many people along the way have just told me, why haven't you sold these? What are you doing? How much money are you putting into this? Like I, all of my good friends were really, really skeptical. And I'm like, look, Guys, for me, I wanted to own these pieces of history and these pieces of the culture that we are creating in the space, because I think the culture that we're creating here is, I mean, I think it's going to become the predominant culture. Crypto culture is just going to be culture in 10 years, okay? Because what we're creating here is so important and so impactful and so um so defining to the course of history that crypto culture is just going to be culture in 10 years. It won't be the only culture, but it will be a predominant culture, if not like one of the most predominant cultures. We're already seeing this by celebrities and influencers from outside the space coming into it, right? They're validating what is being created here. So for me, it was just a no-brainer to like collect some of these pieces that I felt like I enjoy a lot. They reflect my taste. And they they support the creators that I want to support so they can keep creating. So I was like, I want to do this. You know, I want to, I want to have these pieces. And yeah, it is a flex, but for me, it's just like I just like having the satisfaction of knowing I've got them. I like I like looking at my gallery. I like arranging the pieces in there. I like having discussions with the artists that I've collected from and I engage with a lot of them frequently. And it's just, it is fun. I really like your answer. And just to close out not like an investment question or, or advice here. And, and I don't mean to like distill our whole conversation to like one like binary answer here, but you know, let's say you're gun to your head or, or you're getting divorced or something. And somebody says, Hey, you know, you can keep your whole NFT collection or you can keep your ETH. And let's say they're dead. Even what do you think you'd pick? I think if it was gun to my head. So for me, I would probably keep my NFTs because I'm attached to them. You know, yeah, like I right. would want to keep them. And I know that if I had to sell some of them for Ether, I could do that. If I chose the Ether, I am never going to be able, I will probably never be able to buy these NFTs, great answer. some of these NFTs yeah. again, <laughs> you know, and that's just, that's just how I view it. Now, now how, now how should most, now if, if you are making that binary, Tom, I would just caution people. That doesn't mean put 100% into NFTs, right? That's a very, Agreed. I gave you a very Agreed. personal yeah. answer. I think most people are actually going to be much better off financially sticking to Ether, especially if they don't know what they're doing, rather than trying to speculate on random NFTs. But like I said, if you like it, collect it. And that's got to be the number one rule that guides you. Yeah, no, I mean, the curation and getting into the place with the ETH is the barrier, knowing what to buy. Aftab, this has been incredible, man. You're extremely charismatic. You have a ton of knowledge on the space. You've been around for a long time. I I really am straight up jealous of your collection. I love it. Um, (laughs) And the other thing is, I, I cannot believe that you were working a job outside crypto while doing all of this. I mean, <laughs> I, <laughs> it is kind of crazy. No, I really appreciate yeah. that, Tom. And uh, yeah, I, I'm really excited that we got a chance to connect and chat today. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, man. I can't wait to share this. 
Before we go, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. With a proven track record of delivering products safely, the Kava platform is DeFi's most trusted, scalable, and secure institutional-grade cross-chain engine. In addition to the protocols Kava and Hard, the Kava platform is launching Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Try for yourself or learn more today by visiting kava.io. Celo is an open platform for mobile-first DeFi with a vision of bringing decentralized financial tools and services to anyone with a mobile phone. Eco-friendly, Ethereum-compatible, and governed by Celo holders, Celo's proof-of-stake consensus mechanism and automatic daily carbon offsets make Celo the world's first carbon-negative blockchain, offsetting over 2,200 tons of carbon to date. To learn more about how to lend, earn, and stake with Celo's growing family of platform-native stablecoins, visit Celo.org today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.